Are you ready to go off script? Let's see how the Bible challenges the roles the world has written for us. Today, we're covering part two of our series on objections to Christianity, and we are going to look at the issue of hypocrisy. Many are unwilling to even consider Christianity as a viable option because they've witnessed or heard about some horrible act of hypocrisy by a Christian leader. It's hard to deny that hypocrisy is a major problem in Christianity today, whether we look at child molestation among Catholic priests, evangelicals who fall into adultery, or prosperity gospel preachers who squeeze every penny out of their poor congregations. Hypocrisy, let's face it, is a black eye on the bride of Christ. How can we talk to skeptics and unbelievers about this issue? How can we avoid hypocrisy in our own lives? The cure lies in the teaching and example of Jesus. In this frank discussion on the subject, We will take our cue from Jesus and from Nathan and David from the Old Testament to learn how to deal with hypocrisy in ourselves and how to respond to others when they bring up this objection against Christianity. Here now is Offscript, Episode 18, Christians are Hypocrites. Today we're continuing on in our series on objections people bring up to Christianity, and we're looking at the issue of hypocrisy. It goes something like this. Christians think they're morally superior, but they're really just self-righteous and judgmental. Christians want to tell me how to live my life, but they don't know anything about me. Or people point to big-time pastors that get caught in adultery or stealing, or mega-pastors preaching what's called the prosperity gospel, which in many minds is really just charismatic speakers conning the poor and the gullible into giving him their money. This issue of hypocrisy is something that it's multidimensional. I wonder what you guys have seen or what your own thoughts are on the subject. Would you say that Christianity is full of hypocrites and struggles with hypocrisy, or would you say that this is something that's more just a reputation that is unfair. I don't think it's a reputation that's unfair. I think if you take Christianity as a monolith, there is a ton of hypocrisy. I can see their point. I don't think it's exclusive to Christianity. I think hypocrisy is very common in all sort of facets of of society and life and politics and relationships. I mean, it's just one of those things that we have a saying for it, you know, do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> so it's sort of become normalized. I think where the Christian church runs into the, to a problem is that there's this sort of pretense that there isn't hypocrisy in, in the church. So when there is, it's that much more visible. I think the Bible deals with hypocrisy and God clearly illustrates that he hates hypocrisy. Uh, so when it crops up in the church, it's all the more sort of stark and visible to people as sort of an example and just another reason we're talking about objections here just another reason that people use to say well you guys are full of it and i don't have to really look into this with any depth because this pastor just got busted for stealing from the tithe fund so yeah it's definitely a weakness in in the church in general 
I agree uh, with what you said, Dan, that I think humans are kind of predisposed um, to hypocrisy or to inconsistency and um, sometimes lowering the bar for yourself without realizing it. I think it can be very easy to spot problems elsewhere and and be very critical of people. Even for me, um, I feel like hypocrisy can be a daily struggle. Mm. Um, And there are some things that I feel like I'm very vigilant about in my life, but there are other things that I don't have that same sensitivity and vigilance to. And I think we all have moments where maybe it's someone, something someone says to us or a moment of reflection that we have, maybe getting more of like an external view um, of our actions, and our beliefs, when we realize hypocrisy is in our own lives. So I do think it's, it's a very human problem. And, you know, the church being made of humans, the problem is going to be there as well. But I think we need to come at it um, from a point of humility, because hypocrisy touches everyone. That inconsistency touched us before coming to Christ, and will continue to be an area of temptation and of a, of a place of spiritual attack. Um, but it is something I think is very important to be vigilant of. I think it's important to watch each other's backs in the church community because I think it's something we want to avoid and as a purifying process um, to move away from that to be um, to be wholehearted towards God and um, to be consistent as we seek to follow Christ. I once met a hypocritical Muslim. I think I had a very naive view of Islam before that because Muslims tend to be, at least the Muslims I knew, very vigilant about their faith. Mm-hmm. I yeah, I, I used to ride to school when I was going to a community college with this Muslim chap from uh, Pakistan. His family came from Pakistan, and uh, he was very vigilant, very honest with his faith. He listened to the Quran on CD every day on the way to school, and he fasted during Ramadan. He prayed five times a day. He, He really tried to walk the walk as well as talk the talk. And then I had another friend, I had several friends that, that were that were Muslims, and they, and they were all very impressive religiously. You know, they're very faithful people. And uh, one time I was in a, in a park, and I was talking to this young guy, and he definitely had that gangster vibe in the sense that, like, I don't think he was a gangster, but, like, he had that look. Mm-hmm. You know, with like certain tattoos, certain kind of clothing, certain kind of hat that he wore, a certain kind of way, and I was just like, I really didn't think he was a Muslim. And then I was asking him about his faith and stuff, and he said he was. And I'm like, Come on, are you, are you really a Muslim? And he's like, Yeah, I'm a Muslim. I'm like, Well, do you do you pray five times every day? He's like, Well, no, not really. I'm like, Well, I don't know are you really a Muslim? He's like, yeah, I'm a Muslim. I'm like, okay, did you um, fast during Ramadan this whole month where they're supposed to not eat when the sun's up? And he's like, he, he cheats on that. And then I'm like, did you go on Hajj to Mecca? And he said, no. I'm like, do you plan to? He's like, no. I'm like, dude, I, I don't think you're a real Muslim. And, and, and I wasn't saying that to be rude. I was saying that because I'm an outsider. I don't know what a real Muslim is. And I was interested to see what he was going to come back at me with. And he was very friendly anyhow. He wasn't, like, in any way threatening. But then there is this old guy that came by with the big beard. Mm-hmm. And, like, everything about him didn't scream gangster. It screamed Muslim. And I'm, and I'm like, excuse me. And I, I pulled him over into the conversation. And I was like, are you Muslim? He's like, yeah, I'm Muslim. I'm like, this guy says he's a Muslim, but he doesn't pray five times a day. Like, what, what is that? 
and uh you called this guy out in front of like a cleric <laughs> <laughs> no he wasn't That's a cleric so he, was just, he was just like an old guy that you know you could tell like had, had was walking the walk you know yeah. and i was just curious to see how that was going to go and it, it's not like they were going to like beat each other you know it was just like an honest situation at least i was honest about it i wasn't i didn't have an agenda yeah and the guy said that yeah this is a problem you know that the that, that we as muslims have that especially among the youth there there are a bunch of people that aren't taking it seriously and i don't know if that's just in america or if that's in other countries i mean the muslim population in america is so small it's like one percent compared to other countries that have muslims you would probably see a lot more variety but um i thought that was i thought that was interesting because i had like a stereotype of of islam it's like no they're all hardcore mm. and that I met one that wasn't. Mm -hmm. And then you think about atheists. Well, there are some atheists that, that will pray if they get into a lot of trouble and there's no way out. We have that saying, there's no atheist in a foxhole mm. or politically, you know, America can be very hypocritical with policy. Like you look at attacking Iraq because they took over Kuwait, but then doing nothing in Rwanda when, when similar sorts of things happen. I mean, you can look at any kind of, or... Rwanda had nothing to offer us in 92. <laughs> right, right, right. But it's like roughly around the same period when George H.W. Bush uh, yeah. went, went in. So, and, and I don't think America's unique. I think in general, hypocrisy runs through all faiths. I think it runs through all kinds of establishments, whether it's a business, whether it's a professional sports team, whether it's a quilting club. You know, I think you, yeah. I think you have, I don't think it's a Christian problem. I think it's a human problem, like you guys are saying. And I think for that reason, we can have somewhat of a comeback to the objector and say, well, I hear what you're saying and I want to own what's mine, you know, and say, look, you're, I, th I think we do have hypocrisy in Christianity. I want to be honest and humble and say, yeah. But at the same time, I'm like, I, I, I think you have hypocrisy. What's your faith background, Mr. Objector? You know, like, whatever it is, you probably have it there, too. Sometimes right. you can find a Jewish person who, when they go out to eat, they sneak bacon. You know, I've seen that. So would all Jews are hypocrites? No. <laughs> it's, just, it's just something that we all have to deal with. And yet, at the same time, I feel like there is a real PR problem we have as Christians on this issue. I don't know if that kind of a response is really going to help yeah. th that situation. Oh, we're all just hypocrites. Okay, well, let's all hug and get along. No, I mean, I think Christianity gets singled out as being more hypocritical, right. more self-righteous, more judgmental than other faiths, especially now. And I think that comes down to perception. I don't know that we're any more... I guess you could make the argument that we are more hypocritical because we preach what we preach like so you won't see a person who's kind of wishy-washy about their faith like they you know maybe they grew, grew up like episcopalian or something but they don't really follow it but they're not out there proselytizing the criticism of christianity as being hypocritical is, is aimed at those who are very upfront and very sort of in your face about their faith and then behind closed doors you know things happen it's amplified in christianity because there is this perception that we're supposed to be better than that and we should be, and we're called to be, but I mean, like Rose said, we're humans, and it's a human institution, the church. But as with other objections, I think bringing it into the personal is one of the ways to go. If that objection came up 
in a conversation I had, I would be like, you're right. You know, there have been times, you know, in my walk that, that I've been hypocritical. Even the episode we did about, you know, entertainment and what, what we should be watching um, and filling our minds with like, you know, there was conflict in my heart because I was like, yeah, you know, I need to rein in some things, you know, some shows I watch and really take a, a close look at, you know, what I'm allowing into my life. And when I say bring it to the personal, talk about that kind of stuff where it's like, here I am being honest with you, validating your point to an extent and being humble, but saying, yeah, that's something I struggle with, but at least I'm struggling with it. The world, it's just a matter of course. That's how people operate. You just go with the flow. Right. Mm -hmm. That's how relationships work. That's how kids are raised. It's in every facet of life. The true seeking Christian, I think, struggles with it. And like Rose said, has to remain vigilant about it. And just talking about that and bringing it into the personal, I think, is a good way to sort of disarm that objection. Jesus tells a parable about two men who went to pray in Luke 18.10. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This story Jesus tells, I think, gets at the heart of what God really wants out of people which is honesty and humility. And everything the Pharisees said is probably true. He isn't like other people. He isn't an extortioner. He isn't an adulterer. He isn't a tax collector. I think it's all, they're all factual statements. He says, I fast twice a week. I don't think he's lying about that. I think he really did fast twice a week, two days where he just like set aside to not eat or not, or not eat a particular meal and then giving tithes of all he gets. So he's honoring God with his finances. I mean, he is doing everything right, and he's praying to God, and he's there praying. But what's the problem? The problem is that he has no humility. He's he, comparing he, himself. And, he, and he's comparing himself. Those are the two problems that I see here. And you get the sense from Jesus in his ministry that that is, that is more what he is against than anything else is that self-righteous attitude, that pride that wants to compare against other people. To make yourself feel good. To make yourself feel good, yeah. yeah. And the, the simple fact is, we all do that. I do that. That's natural for me. If you do something that you know is wrong or a gray area or suspect, if you're anything like me, the way I would deal with it is like immediately I'm like, well, yeah, yeah, I, I might, to put it very softly, have an opportunity to improve here. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm not nearly as bad as Joe over here. I mean, mm. Joe's really bad. Mm -hmm. But that's not, that's not a proper way for us to go. It's just going to prop us up with our pride and make us feel like we're better than other people. And that, that's something that Jesus is, is dead set against in this parable here. 
I think hypocrisy will often arise out of some sort of disconnect um, or multiple disconnects. So it can often be a disconnect with God's will for us and what we choose to do. Um, You can also have issues with your attitude towards God and your humility towards God. You see this Pharisee here um, acting in a way in which God really hates and focusing so much on himself rather than um, focusing for the glory of God. Um, but when, when you get disconnected or possibly disconnected from loving God as you should, and when it becomes solely about the works, you can really, um, strain out a gnat and swallow a camel in this case. And yeah, I think it's human nature to do that. We don't like self-examination. We don't like being honest with ourselves about things. It's really hard I know for I, us. I know I don't. Yeah. 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 <laughs> because, you know, if you're honest about yourself, then about something that, you know, you, a weakness that you have in, in your life, you're compelled to change and people don't like to change. And so that self-examination, you know, becomes uncomfortable. So it is much easier to compare yourself to Joe or whatever, whoever you're, you're comparing Joe yourself Schmo. to. Yeah, Joe Schmo. <laughs> With hypocrisy, I go back to the story of um, David and Bathsheba in Second Samuel. Oh, yeah. Uh, which I think, you know, is probably one of the primary examples of uh, hypocrisy when Nathan confronts him. Nathan comes in and tells David a parable about a man who had a sheep and it was a precious sheep, only sheep he had. And a rich guy who had, you know, hundreds of sheep in his flock took the man's one sheep and used it, you know, for a feast for a friend or some sort of banquet that he was throwing. And, and David was outraged, <laughs> you know, like, mm-hmm. cause this guy had this one precious sheep that, that he loved dearly and the rich greedy man took it. And then I think it's in second Samuel 12 where Nathan goes, you, you are the man. And David had a really godly reaction to that. He didn't kill Nathan. He didn't throw Nathan out on his ear. And David was punished for, for what he did. I mean, his son died, but he mourned his sin. You know, I think it says that he put on sackcloth and none of his servants could get to him. None of his family. He was just inconsolable. And then once he received word that his, that his son was passed, that was it. You know, he got up and he carried on with his life. And that's kind of an extreme example, but that level of honesty with yourself, I think is held up as, as an example to us that we can apply in lesser areas of our lives. I mean, unless you've stolen your friend's wife, (laughs) (laughs) then then you could apply it literally. Right. And I think God honors that. Not that you're not going to, you know, have consequences, but I think God honors that. And you can get back to that place where, where you're good. Something about hypocrisy that just it just bothers us when we see it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Somebody that, but even that's hypocritical because we do it too. <laughs> <laughs> or uh, how about the priests? Here you have people who wear specialized clothing, mm. who represent God, and from a Catholic perspective, they believe that they have a special ability to turn bread into the body of Christ. They believe it's something that physically happens and from a catholic point of view they're holy men god's anointed ones and for them to be violating children i mean it's just like mm-hmm. yeah it, it, you know it, that's probably the most stark example of hypocrisy in the in the monolith that is christianity that we mm-hmm. have today yeah there's probably not another one that you could point to that so starkly lays out how truly terrible yeah that is and it was so widespread too. It wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't just like one church. Or I remember one at city. the end of Spotlight where they listed all the uh, mm-hmm. 
all the churches around the U.S. and there was like there were places around here where we were you know where we're recording this podcast in in Albany, New York, that the scandal had touched. I mean, there I think geographically it was probably in every state. Yeah. The, one of the problems is with like priests or take for example the, the mega pastor that runs away with the secretary or something like that. These are people that claim to represent us as Christians. Mm-hmm. So then it's like even worse. There's like the actual logical way of thinking it through and say, well, that's just this one person or that's just this group of people over here. I mean, there are literally over 2 billion Christians on the planet. So Mm. we're talking about, what, a thousand people altogether or a million people altogether, however many it is. But then there's the other 99% that are trying to do this thing for real, or I don't know what the percentage would be, probably less than that. I'm sure less than that. <laughs> probably less than that. But um, well, I don't know the way to deal with that, honestly. But I can say this, that Jesus was against it. Mm. His whole ministry stood against hypocrisy. He fought it day in and day out. And to think, there's such, there's such irony to think that there would be hypocrisy in the name of Christ mm-hmm. later on when he, Christ himself, was so much against it. Like, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, he teaches about fasting. He says, when you fast, wash your face and anoint your head. In other words, don't go around unwashed and with frizzy hair so as to draw attention to yourself and say, I'm fasting, I'm fasting. How are you doing today? Well, I'm fasting. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I am doing well spiritually, but physically I'm, I'm hurting over here. And it's, I'm glad you asked because I, um, I really wanted to talk about this. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny because the Bible says that those people that do that have their reward. Yeah. And their yeah. reward is that conversation where they right. get to sort of yeah, that's what display you get. what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And it's so sad because you think you're making the sacrifice for God, but you're you're choosing a, a less, a much lesser reward. Yeah. And what Jesus says in those cases is, do it for God. Mm. Don't do it to be seen by people. Do it for God. Like when you fast, the whole point is to enhance your prayer. That's why fasting and prayer mm. is always tied together. It's not a communal... I mean, there can be times where like a group of people decides to fast together. But other than that, like if you're going through something and, and you, you want to like strengthen your prayer life then you fast. And like, if, if it's for the purpose of prayer, then who needs to see you fasting? Well, it's God that needs to see you fasting. So it, it is a very private matter. And then the other one he says is praying. When you pray, enter into your inner room, basically go in your closet, which I don't think their closets were necessarily the same as our closets, but go into an inner, go into mm-hmm. a place where you're private. That, I think that's the point there. Yes. And so we have that phrase, the prayer closet. And... For a lot of us, I think that's not necessarily a place so much as a time. At least for me, it's it's more of a time than a place. Driving or... Well, for me, it's it's a time when my kids are not yet awake. Because <laughs> once they are, it's like it's already over. So, or after they go to bed, I tend to pray more in the morning. Just my preference, you know, where I, where I can just be alone with God. And then he says, when you give your alms... To the poor don't sound a trumpet before you and, and why is that because you're you're doing it not to look good you're doing it to honor god like god who sees in secret secret will reward you mm. rather than you already have your reward and you're doing it to enhance your relationship with him 
so if you spoil that by doing what the Bible tells you not to do, you know, you're working against yourself. Yeah. So in other words, if we follow Jesus, not just believe in him, but also follow him in reference to being genuine, then our concern should always be what does God think about this rather than how does this make me look? And in an age where image is everything, your curated social media profile is a big deal, how you appear on LinkedIn is a big deal, how you appear like in print for you, Dan, uh, or, I mean, you're, you're in the visual arts, Rose. I mean, it's, it's all about how you appear, how this email looks. <laughs> yeah. Right? And is, does it look professional? Does it have the right style to it? So much of our society today is based on that. We live in such a visual culture mm. and such a communications dominated culture and information culture that, I mean, you, you do see it on social media. Oh, I'm fasting today. Oh, I'm praying for this. Oh, you know, I want to support this cause. You know, I mean, everything is so out there and it, and I don't even know if people even think of it like that, but mm. I think we should be concerned. It is interesting because those examples that you just spoke about that Christ called out people who blow the trumpet before them and, you know, who pray loudly about how, you know, morally impressive they are. It was their PR that ended up making them look like fools because they were so focused on that. Um, it was not the sacrifice of the heart and, and quietly following God and the vertical focus. It was the horizontal focus that ended up totally imploding on them. How about this one? Jesus in Matthew 23 cuts loose on the scribes and the Pharisees, and he says all these woes. He says in 23, 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. That's what Rose mentioned earlier. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. This emphasis on the external is what Jesus is after. It's like, mm. you guys look so good, you sound so good, but you are a hypocrite because even though you are you're tithing on your table spices, you're neglecting the weightier matters of justice and mercy. You don't care about people. Mm. Mm -hmm. You're so focused on how people look at you, but you don't care about people. And your concern is God's not your first concern. And in a lot of those records, you know, whether it's Jesus or, you know, one of his followers, it says that the Pharisees are pricked in their hearts. Like you see that in Acts 7. Mm where, you know, in Stephen's defense, where he, t he goes through basically the whole history of Israel. And it's a confrontational thing. Those stories are in the Bible to illustrate how, how hypocrisy is, in God's eyes, deplorable. Mm -hmm. I had a friend who grew up in a Methodist church um, that ended up being very nominal and very hypocritical. And it was just kind of something that they did uh, when she was younger, but as she got older, it was passages like these in the scripture where you see how God and how Jesus absolutely despise hypocrisy themselves. She found so much affinity in that and was able to, in her mind, really devote herself to God while realizing that she could be critical 
and try to seek reform. And I think her family ended up leaving the church. But the fact that there was hypocrisy in the church did not have to hinder her relationship with God, that God was really in her corner um, in that sense Mm. and that he hated it too. And that God does not justify the church, be like, oh, my bride. It's just how she is. That's not, that's not how Christ is. No equivocation. No, no. Christ seeks the holiness and the spotlessness in his bride. And when people are outraged about atrocities in the church or whatever, we have every right to be. That is how God feels too. Um, so to know that God is in our corner, that's great. We don't have to, um, we don't have to try to justify this. We should seek holiness. Right. In our time as well, the age of hyper-individualism and authenticity where everyone is supposed to be genuine to who they really are, and that's what courage is, as opposed to, I don't know, achieving something difficult. (laughs) Mm. We have to take this even more seriously than in the past, because what people are looking for, I mean, just just to look at the Clinton versus Trump election, I mean, Trump, Trump says some pretty morally offensive things and did some morally offensive things. He was more honest about who he was, I don't know. Maybe I, maybe that's not even true either. Well, there was the perception that he was more authentic. Than there, yeah, there's a perception that he was. He's kind more... of off script. <laughs> he was definitely off. Script. His, his team, his team was upset with him for going so off script. <laughs> but it, whereas Clinton was very polished, very much doing politics the way politics should be done and trying to say the right things whereas like trump was like he would he would like randomly tweet something that everyone knew was authentic but also wrong (laughs) also like offended people or sabotage his own campaign right yeah well there was a perception that loved and people loved him for it there was a perception that clinton was calculated and trump was authentic he has flaws but he's authentic right right and people preferred that in their situation their political (laughs) their political imaginings right so that's just one other example of this virtue of authenticity and i think authenticity is great Mm. believe me uh it's all over the scriptures and as a result of that we need to take this more seriously maybe than we even have in the past as as christians that and and I'm, i'm speaking personally here that when i am struggling with something when i am being tempted or i have fallen short in some area to to be more forthcoming about it I'm not sure exactly how to do that. It's not like every time we get together, we should all go around and say all our sins. <laughs> yeah. You know, like that's not really, I don't think, a helpful thing to do. When I do mess up, the number one thing I want to do is just like move beyond it, not tell everyone I run into, oh, by the way, I, I lied the other day. Mm. I feel really bad about it and I've repented, but I didn't want you to think that I tell the truth all the time because I, I did make, make a mistake the other day. <laughs> what kind of a weirdo is that? You know, <laughs> so, I'm reminded of a talk that Tim Keller gave. <laughs> this moment brought to you by Tim Keller. Bring uh, it. <laughs> is he getting a piece of this podcast? Like, are we? <laughs> is there some secret agreement? <laughs> no, I have to pay him. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, he he talks about the moral performance narrative when he spoke on exclusivism and the issue there of looking at how you do in a particular field and then basing your identity and your value on that. So like if you're a really good dancer, for example, and you are able to get booked at certain 
ballets and and you have a name and all this like you do really well in your field it's easy to think well therefore i'm highly valued and to base your identity on that behavior Mm -hmm. or let's just say you're a hard-working person and your identity is based on the fact that you're a hard-working person it's impossible for you to not look down your nose at lazy people Mm -hmm. and think you're better than them or say you're a religious person and, and like you go to you know, I think of like some very religious Catholics, you know, they'll go to church every day. They'll go to mass every day. They can't help but look down their nose at Easter and Christmas Catholics, mm. right? Or people that just go to get uh, christened, confirmed, married, and buried, right? Like mm-hmm. you can't help but look down your nose at those people if, if your identity is based on the fact that I go to church every day, mm-hmm. right? And so Tim Keller's point here is that so long as we are basing our value and our identity on what we're able to achieve or what we're good at, we are going to look down on other people. We are going to be judgmental. However, if we have a, what he calls a grace narrative, which is that, hey, I'm not good enough for God. I've, I don't measure up to his standards of right and wrong. I'm a moral failure. I, and what makes me great is the fact that God forgave me. Mm. God's acceptance of me is what makes me special, makes me have value, gives me adoption into his family. Mm. And then if your identity is truly based on Christ died for me when I didn't deserve it, then you don't look down on other people who are hypocrites or who are lazy or who are not doing something that you think they should be doing. You don't look down on them. You say, maybe God could reach them like he reached me. Maybe I can get involved in this situation. I think of how Jesus must have felt when Paul was persecuting the church. Mm. I mean, I think of Jesus as like the captain of the team. You ever play a sport where like the captains pick which people go on your team? Jesus is looking down from heaven. He sees Paul running around, tearing up the church. On the opposite team. On the opposite <laughs> team, right? He's, he's playing the other side. He's persecuting the church. And, and Jesus says, that guy right there, he's got something. Mm. Let's see if we can flip him. You know, and then Jesus shows up with him uh, and, and knocks, knocks him, him off, off the horse <laughs> or whatever. And the bright light and, you know, and, and Paul, Paul switches teams, right? And I, I think that's a good way to look at people, even really bad people, and say, look, you know, if they were a Christian, they would be awesome. They would be mm. a powerhouse. Mm-hmm. Or look, people that are very unmotivated, like if they just had Christ in their lives, then they'd have that drive that they need, you know? And, and it just gives you a perspective on people who you would be tempted to look down on, instead show genuine concern for them. Because mm. you know that God can help them. Look, if, if, if God can can turn people's lives around, people who are addicted to drugs and who have murdered others and all kinds of heinous things, then this annoying person at my job, like somehow God could reach them. Yeah. I mean, obviously the person would have to be willing, but I think it's a healthier perspective, the grace narrative. You know, when somebody brings up the objection of hypocrisy, agreeing with them, being like, yeah, that Catholic church business, that was shameful and deplorable and sick then going to these records in the Bible that Sean mentioned about all the examples of where God illustrates how he hates hypocrisy or Jesus illustrates where he hates hypocrisy. 
a defense against this objection is, is to separate the word of God from the institution of Christianity. As we said at the top, Christianity, as far as it being an institution, is a human institution. It's flawed. And like Sean said, you can point to any institution where there's hypocrisy. I mean, the NFL, they, you know, they support all these causes uh, and they're probably one of the biggest philanthropic organizations in the world uh, monetarily. And yet their primary activity is destroying men's bodies. That's not the point, but that's what winds up happening, you know, and then, and then they cover, and then they cover up, you know, the way that that, the way that that's happening, you know, with the, with the traumatic brain injuries, you can look at institutions outside of Christianity and point towards where this phenomenon of hypocrisy is everywhere. And then sort of bring them into the Bible and say, this is what the word says about this. Yes. These Mm -hmm. people, these, these men are hypocritical, you know, the, the mega churches that the pastor's you know, trying to buy a G7 airplane, you know, like, yes, that's an example of, of hypocrisy in the church. And you're absolutely right. And I'm outraged by that. And God is outraged by that as well. But here's what the Bible says. And sharing that with them, I think is a good separating the institution from the word of God is a good defense against this objection. The book of Malachi. And then also like Isaiah one, I think, um, in the old Testament are some of the most scathing. Mm. I mean, it's really kind of in the style of Jesus, some of the most, um, scathing moments of God rebuking basically, um, the hypocrites in Israel. And I, I again, find so much, um, relief really, um, in these things that God is not out making excuses, um, for the hypocrisy and really the sin in his people. God is out to rebuke them and, and refine them and bring them back to, um, to living the way he would have them live and to being consistent um, with his will in their lives. The Isaiah chapter 1 reference you made really sticks in my head. Yeah. Because God basically says, I don't like your church services. I mean, <laughs> yeah. they don't have church in their time. They had services at the temple but what God says is like, I can't stand your music. Hold on, I'm pulling it up right now. I know in Malachi, he hates it so much. He says, oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar. I have no pleasure in you. Right. This is uh, Isaiah 111. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams, of the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs and goats. And then he says in verse 13, bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. So what, what are the people doing? They're ripping each other off. They're pursuing injustice, but then they're still going to the religious service and doing the religious ritual of animal sacrifice and god's offended at their religiosity he says in verse 15 when you spread out your hands i will hide my eyes from you even though you make prayers i will not listen your hands are full of blood wash yourselves make yourselves clean remove the evil of your deeds learn to do good come now let us reason together though your sins are like scarlet they shall be white as snow and he goes on, if, if they would be willing and obedient, he, he wants to heal them. But at the same time, you see that there is this sense of like, let's keep these things separate. I have my own life. I have my business dealings. I have the way I treat my wife when no one's looking. I have the way that I interact with my government or my children or whatever, my friends or my computer. 
And then there's like the religious part of my life mm. where like I pray and I go to church or I give money or whatever. And it's, and God's like, no, 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 yeah. no. Don't separate. You, you have to be a hundred percent. Cause like God does want to actually s- accept these sacrifices in ancient Israel, but not if it means they think they're now justified to continue with bloodshed. Yeah. It said, <laughs> uh, the passage you just read Isaiah one eleven. I don't know what translation you're reading, but it said, uh, that God cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Mm. That's pretty strong language. He, uh, he's God, but he's saying that he cannot endure it. Right. He literally... I can't handle this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, so let's wind our thoughts down to a conclusion here. A spirit of humbleness is important, I think. Not that you can't push back. I would also say, you know, you can look at hypocrisy everywhere and bring up examples like the NFL. Um, but humility is probably key in this situation because it is a valid criticism of the church as a whole so being humble about it and not sort of denying that hypocrisy exists because it's very it's it it is self-evident you you do see it a lot Mm -hmm. totally agree with a take on humility if you come at it from a fighting kind of position the conversation isn't going to go well and you're going to probably get hypocritical yourself Mm. um pugnacious pugnacious don't don't be pugnacious in these conversations yeah you do have to be humble i think it's um very important to just lay out though what you desire and what you don't desire um and both your i guess your personal life and also in the church um that you desire god and you desire his will and you desire his holiness and you desire um to to carry out things in the way that he has designed it that the hypocrisy bothers you and that it bothers you deeply too but that given all that Christ went through um, to establish the church, that he gave himself for her. Um, it is now our job to continue on that love through a refining and a sort of a sanctifying process that, similar to the faithfulness of Yahweh in the Old Testament, um, this is a relationship that you will come back to despite the unfaithfulness of the church, and that as a member, you're in it for the long haul. Um, and yeah, you can't deny the problems um, or try to justify them away. Um, but this is something that you are committed to as Christ was committed to the church and that holiness, you know, in, in the style of God is something that you will continue to pursue. Be the change you want to see yeah. in the world or in the church. If, if you see hypocrisy, I don't think the point is pull out and now don't fellowship with anyone. Yeah, because wherever you wind up, you're going to see hypocrisy there right. too. <laughs> right. Uh, I think the point is you be genuine. Right. You take the path of courage, of honesty, of transparency, of humility, and of taking holiness seriously, because that's the only way to avoid hypocrisy, is to actually live the way that you are confessing Mm -hmm. you're living, following Christ. And when we fall, we get back up. We do 1 John 1, we confess our sins, Mm -hmm. we get honest with God, and then we seek to sabotage that sin in our lives going forward, in the sense of not making any provision for the flesh, and actually repenting of it. Repenting is not just saying you're sorry, it's actually changing. And, you know, sometimes changing takes a long time, and Mm -hmm. other times it's instantaneous. It's just a matter of making a decision. Other times you need to get accountable. You need to find somebody that you can talk to and be sure that you're being held to account for whatever the issue is. And at the same time, realizing that Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mm. God is for you. He's not against you. He wants you to, to overcome whatever it is. And that in the end, he wants you to be in the kingdom with him. 
and he's given you every way to get there through the empowerment of the spirit and the forgiveness of the cross so that you can make it. So I, I think we have to have an optimistic view, but at the same time, be the genuine Christian. Just by way of conclusion, I think of that story of Rosaria Champagne Butterfield, and she, she was uh, invited over to a pastor's house, and she went with very impure intentions, and <laughs> she was very impressed by how he prayed for, just for the, for the food because he was honest, and he was like, yeah, I don't have it all together, and I'm flawed, but God, you can see me through. Mm. And just that little bit of window into his soul as a genuine Christian, he's not a showy or flamboyant or celebrity Christian. He's just like a pastor of a, a little congregation there in the neighborhood, and he was honest. And that, that alone opened the door for her right. to, to start down that journey. So thank you all for listening. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening, guys. As always, uh, we appreciate your feedback and input. And uh, drop us a comment at restitudio.org. And we'll see you next time. Thank you so much, guys. We hope uh, that we encouraged you and feel free to join the conversation and share your thoughts with us about this topic as about all the others. I'm going to say goodbye in German today. Learn this word from Sean. It's bisbald. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I just wanted to mention before we close that if you are interested in hearing or reading about Rosaria Butterfield's story, check out the show notes for this episode and you can watch her YouTube video where she gets interviewed and tells her story or by her book where she goes into much more detail telling her story, which I've read and is very interesting, especially the first half where she's talking about this pastor that invited her into his home and was incredibly authentic and humble and really blew apart all of her stereotypes about what Christians believe and how they are. So check that out, and we'll see you next time, next week, where we discuss another objection to Christianity. Uh, Isn't the Bible antiquated and irrelevant? So stay tuned for that next week. If you want to drop a comment on this episode, if you want to add your voice to the mix, log on to restitudio.org and look for episode 18 of Offscript. Or if you haven't already, please give us a review in iTunes. It really does help others find the show when they search. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.